Welcome to Grieving Out Loud. When the term drug cartel comes to mind, you probably associate it with violence, greed, and Mexico. However, you may be surprised to learn that these ruthless Mexican drug cartels have a more significant impact on communities across the United States than you may think. Recently, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration completed a year-long operation exposing direct connections between these cartels and various communities throughout the U.S. Yes, we're primarily focused on the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco cartel. They transitioned from methamphetamine to the fentanyl production and they leveraged the people transitioning with the regulatory efforts on prescription, diverted prescription drugs. They started to really go in there and first we saw the heroin, some fentanyl mixed into it, and then evolved to just pure fentanyl. And then they started making the fake pills to look like the prescription drugs. That's DEA Special Agent Justin King. He leads the DEA's Omaha Field Division, where investigators directly linked 26 operations over the past year to those two main drug cartels. Even more connections are expected as cases move forward. Not only is he seeing the cartels work in all areas of our nation, but the DEA is also seizing an exponential amount of fentanyl, including more than 62 million fentanyl-laced fake prescription pills already in 2023. Those too often deadly pills are being sold in various ways. Cartels, their members, and their associates even use social media apps to reach out to victims. They can go to Snapchat or they can go to Signal or WhatsApp. Or, or the they, next app. The, or the next, the app, next right? one. And sometimes these are proprietary. Only a few people have them. We see emojis being used as, you know, instead of some people saying a slang word, now they have an emoji for what something looks like. And it sometimes will be geographically centered. Sometimes it'll be somewhere else that you see that. Our administrator likes to say the drug deal that used to be done in the back alley is now being done on a cell phone. Special Agent King, with more than two decades in the field, has seen a lot of those changes. In this episode of Grieving Out Loud, we're diving into what King is witnessing right now as the U.S. tackles its deadliest drug epidemic in history. We'll hear his take on what needs to change and why our nation got stuck in this epidemic in the first place. I'm your host, Angela Kennecke. Join me as I sit down with King at the DEA Family Summit in Minneapolis. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me after the DEA Family Summit. I really appreciate it. Well, we're glad you're here and thank you for having us. And we want to get the word out and continue to share our story and to continue to learn from other people's stories so we can work together to help in this opioid epidemic. Yeah, I've been really impressed by the DEA in terms of reaching out to families, holding events like the one that we were at today, and also just even having the faces of fentanyl, wall, just really making it about more than just drug arrests or drug busts. Well, everything we do, we try to do what's best for the community and make our community safer. And, you know, our priorities are to defeat the two cartels who are putting these products into our country and reduce violence that's associated with drug trafficking. And also a big part of that is how do we get the numbers down, try to lower the numbers of the people that 
are dying from fentanyl. And our One Pill Can Kill campaign and our family summits are two ways that we're really trying to really expand our efforts and work smarter to help our communities. You've been working in this field for a while. I have. How many years? 21. 21 years. So 21 years ago, what was it like? What was the drug traffic like? What was going on? I started actually on the border. The southwest border was my first assignment. And at the time, a lot of marijuana, bulk loads of marijuana coming in from Mexico, we were working a lot of cocaine. And over that first few years, we started to see more methamphetamine that was coming out of Mexico. And we just have continued to see that evolve. We always had heroin that was coming in, loads of that. But now, over the last few years, we've seen it accelerate. And there's some reasons why that's accelerated. Yeah, what is the reason? And I, I want to talk about meth, too, because mm-hmm. as a reporter, I mean, I was covering meth like crazy in the early 2000s, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. Meth changed. You know, the way the meth coming up from Mexico, that changed. People used to make it here. And then also the heroin, it seemed like, also flooded this country much more prevalently after we saw the prescription drug crisis really happen, too. Yes, everything seems to have an effect. And what we saw was that those supply lines and those distribution networks that were developed through marijuana, cocaine, heroin, old school, you know, smuggling routes, well, they started to really leverage those to bring in the methamphetamine they were making in Mexico, that they were getting the precursor chemicals from China and other countries, but predominantly China. And so they would use that and they started to really push that methamphetamine as our regulatory efforts helped to curb the number of labs that were producing meth in the United States. Right. People couldn't make meth here as much as they could previously. And what we saw was they were making purer and purer methamphetamine. And actually, the cost kept coming down. It's cheaper and it's more effective. Yeah, they absolutely took a model where they could mass produce it in quantities that weren't as expensive to make. Even though they weren't charging as much, they were still making a large profit because they were selling so much of it. And also the drugs really went from being like a plant-based drug, even heroin, you know, with poppies, a crop-based drug, marijuana, to a chemical-based drug. Yes, the synthetic drug does not have a growing season. It does not have a product. They don't have to have the manual labor to do all that. And, you know, I've worked in Afghanistan in the poppy fields and eradicating that. And and it's a very tedious process to, to produce heroin from that once you get that going. It's the same thing with marijuana growing. So anything synthetic, there's a higher profit margin. And plus, they make an unlimited supply of it. And you just need a building to make it in. A building, but they a lot of times will make it in the middle of a jungle or they'll make it, you know, somewhere in a rural area because it takes a lot of laboratories to make the products. Another monumental moment in America's drug crisis actually started within the country itself. In 1996, drug manufacturer Purdue Pharma launched OxyContin with an aggressive marketing campaign. Sales for the prescription painkiller skyrocketed from 48 million in 1996 to nearly 1.1 billion in just four years. We've interviewed dozens of people on Grieving Out Loud who've battled substance use disorder after being prescribed a prescription painkiller. That includes Jessica Fowl. I realized that the pills that I had been prescribed for recovery after surgery gave me kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling, made me not care so much about things in life and numbed things that I didn't want to feel. And I just continued on the path of 
trying to get more and more pills and more and more pills. And life just continued to, well, started to spiral out of control a few years after that. And at the time, that was legally prescribed to you. Yes. Although it's the same old story we hear over and over again. Eventually, they stop refilling the prescription. In my situation, I was getting them from a doctor, and then I started to use more than I was supposed to. So I would run out early and go through some withdrawals and be miserable. So then I went to a second doctor to get another prescription. And I think that worked for a couple of months before they both discovered what I had done. And then I got fired from both doctors point. Is that when you switched to getting drugs off the street? Yes. According to the CDC, the first wave of the American drug crisis started in the 90s as doctors prescribed opioids in abundance. The second wave hit in 2010, marked by a sharp increase in overdose deaths linked to heroin. There was this abundance of opioids being prescribed, overabundance, and too many prescriptions out there, and many people found themselves addicted. Then they said, this is too much. We're going to cut you off. We're going to watch this closer. Health systems and governments agreed. And that sent people to the streets to look for heroin, right? Yeah, there's a, a couple of parts to that answer. One of the parts is the Drug Enforcement Administration. We have a regulatory side, our diversion side. So through regulatory efforts and working with the medical community to really bring down the number of people who were going out and taking those prescription drugs, and we found people that were diverting that out of the system. And as we saw that continue to rise with the heroin use and people transition because they could not get that, you're absolutely right, then we saw that grow. And we continue to see that right now. We see a lot more experimental use with opioids that maybe isn't a transition like it used to be. And that's one of the things that is also so concerning is because the cartels, the drug traffickers, they market to anybody that will buy their product. And sometimes we're seeing that even younger people and they're using social media and, and the things that people use nowadays. They're using all those methods to distribute their product. They want new customers. They want new customers. And so you mentioned that heroin was coming in for a while, but now is there much heroin or is it just all fentanyl? We have seen a decline in heroin seizures significantly. There still are heroin seizures. We still do. But with the fentanyl seizures, like we said, it's a lower overhead product. They don't have to put as much money into it and they will produce that. And their profit margins are extremely high because of it. It's all about profit. All, all about profit. New at 11, a new promise tonight from China could help curb the amount of fentanyl that's shipped to the United States. What appeared to be a major step forward in America's fight against drugs happened in late 2018. China agreed to reclassify fentanyl as a controlled substance. The new designation meant people in China who sell fentanyl to the U.S. would be subject to China's maximum penalty under the law. However, Chinese companies and individuals have discovered a loophole by producing fentanyl precursors and exporting them to other nations, mainly Mexico, for the transformation of these precursors into the powerful and often deadly synthetic opioid fentanyl. The laboratories in Mexico, they have chemists who are very smart. They can take chemicals and compound them together to make that fentanyl. And so you're right, precursors come in instead of fentanyl. The cartels have been around forever, right? Mm -hmm. But it's just two cartels that the DEA is really focusing on right now. Yes, we're primarily focused on the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco cartel. 
they transitioned from methamphetamine to the fentanyl production. And like you said earlier, they leveraged the people transitioning with the regulatory efforts on prescription, diverted prescription drugs. They started to really go in there. And first we saw the heroin, some fentanyl mixed into it, and then evolved to just pure fentanyl. And then they started making the fake pills to look like the prescription drugs. The U.S. has been trying to go after those cartels through several different tactics. In addition to arresting drug traffickers and seizing illicit drugs, federal prosecutors have charged 28 members and associates of the Mexican Sinaloa cartel, including sons of the former drug lord known as El Chapo. One of those sons, 33-year-old Ovidio Guzman Lopez, was arrested and extradited to the U.S. earlier this year. The Justice Department has also pressed charges against several Chinese companies for their alleged involvement in drug trafficking. And the Treasury Department has sanctioned dozens of individuals and entities in China and Mexico. These sanctions effectively cut off their access to the U.S. financial system and prohibits any business transactions with them by American entities. What is the strategy there? And how do you bring the cartels under control? What do you think is the way? Well, the the strategy is always to work your investigations. It's a network and you have to work that network. So we might be working an investigation in Minneapolis, in Sioux Falls, in Omaha, and eventually those are going to go back and intersect at one of the cartels. And that sometimes will happen on this side of the border. Sometimes it will happen on the other side of the border. But it's all about networks that can control that distribution and then ultimately pull the revenue back in. So the strategy is when you have offices throughout the United States with not just us, but state, local, other federal law enforcement, as we work these investigations and we continue to share that intelligence, we build that bigger investigation and the prosecution and then to hold them accountable, we have brought people out of Mexico, you know, El Chapo, one of them, one of his sons recently were brought out. So it's a continuous working. And then we also have to work with the other government to help us to do these investigations because ultimately these targets are in another country. I talked to somebody from the Office of National Drug Control Policy who told me that really you have to go after the business networks of these cartels, that they have accountants and lawyers and all kinds of people that make it a profitable business operation. You do. You go after every part of it. And that is one of the things that, you know, we would always look at where the money goes because the money would lead you back to someone. But now we continue to see that they become more creative with how they move money. Maybe the money is being used to do something else. And then you have different secondary effects within the organization, but they do have those people in place. And it's very, very challenging to dissect that whole network unless you're getting that active intelligence and you're continuing to work these investigations. So everything we do, we try to siphon as much intelligence out of it as we can. We've heard fentanyl called a weapon of mass destruction. We've heard some lawmakers call for just bomb Mexico and the cartels. Would you support sending U.S. special forces over the border into Mexico to take out fentanyl labs to take out drug cartel operations. Yes, and I will do it on day one. You have the cartels controlling a lot of part of your southern border. We have to reestablish the rule of law, and we have to defend our people. 
I will deploy all necessary military assets, including the U.S. Navy, to impose the full naval embargo on the cartels. Furthermore, I will order the Department of Defense to make appropriate use of special forces, cyber warfare, and other overt and covert actions to inflict maximum damage on cartel leadership, infrastructure, and operations. Mexico's not being a good partner if they're letting the cartels get away with what they're getting away with. What we will do is we will make sure that we send in our special operations and we will take out the cartels, we'll take out their operations, we'll take out anything that's doing it. Is that a solution? Well, that's that's definitely not my forte, and, and I don't want to get political, but I will No, I'm not say, asking you yeah, to get political, yeah, but... Yeah. Yes. yeah, what I will say is that we know where the product is coming from. We know how it's coming into the country with multiple different avenues. And we do know that that is absolutely destabilizing our country because not only we know we talk about the lives lost, but the revenue that's lost out of this country, the money that leaves this country, the, you know, how many people, maybe it's not somebody that passes away from a fentanyl poisoning, but it's somebody who's in rehab or other things. And every bit of that is a challenge. And we have to continue to go after it aggressively, not just us, but other government entities as well. Right. Trying to get other governments, other countries like China to stop selling the precursors and things like that as well. Absolutely. So a lot of people say, well, I know the solution to this problem. Let's just shut down the border. We know there's a lot of policing going on at the border. Can you talk about would just building a wall or shutting down the border end this problem? Well, as somebody who worked for years on for started my career on the border, I think a lot of people don't know how vast the border with Mexico is. But I think another thing that's important for people to realize is that there are not just drugs that come across the border. They come in through other avenues, you know, through shipping, they come in through parcels, they're flown in. So there's constantly going to be one thing you do can lead to another. Does deterrence have an effect? Can it slow down? It will, but you're talking about people who will try to expand to other avenues. And it's very rare that we work in an organization that has one way they get their drugs into this country. So we have to look at all those avenues and we will continue to do that. And we support those who are working on the board, because we know they have a difficult job. And I think that the way to look at that is what is the best way for them to do their job on the border and what tools do they need? There are some pretty creative ways that they're getting fentanyl and other drugs into this country, aren't there? There are. What's some interesting ways that you've seen? We used to see a lot of false compartments. We still do a lot, see a lot of false compartments and they put in those in and vehicles like that, yeah. and they put it in. Things. One of the things that's really started to challenge is the fake pills are so small. You can hide quite a few of them in a small area. And so we've really seen as society has evolved to where people are more used to having things delivered to home. Well, and we see drug trafficking organizations that exploit that. You know, parcels, we see a lot of drugs through, the, whether it be the postal system, FedEx, UPS. We also see people becoming creative with how they advertise and connect with customers where it is. And so it continues to be something that is unique and these models get passed around from one city state to another. So they might start with like a social media platform, but then people are onto that maybe. And so then they switch to something else. Like what? Like what's been something? They go to an app like, you know, they can go to Snapchat or they can go to 
Signal or WhatsApp or the next app, the next next one. And sometimes these are proprietary. Only a few people have them. We see emojis being used as, you know, instead of people saying a slang word, now they have an emoji for what something looks like. And it sometimes will be geographically centered. Sometimes it'll be somewhere else that you see that. Our administrator likes to say the drug deal that used to be done in the back alley is now being done on a cell phone. Right, right. And what about the tunnels? I thought that was interesting, the tunnels that were shown today at the summit. So we noticed the tunnels have really grown, and that was a big thing with the Sinaloa cartel, especially out in the California area, and we continue to see the tunnels. They're digging tunnels underground. Digging tunnels underground and, right, you know, the border. Mm-hmm. Is That's a border through. issue. Yeah, sure. and they, the tunnels, we actually have, I think in San Diego area, there's tunnel groups that work tunnels and things. But once the drugs make it into this country, however they make it, if it comes on a ship or a plane or through a tunnel, it's my understanding that about 80 to 85 percent of those are being dealt by Americans to other Americans. You know, they get to Americans who sell them to other Americans. Is that the case? I don't know the the exact percentage, but I will say that you will see at some point that that cartel member or whatever, it will be handed off to somebody in that area. And you usually will see your local dealers. But what you do see a lot of your cities is a distributor that's for, you know, and so they're a more mid-level dealer, and then you see that street-level dealership get out there. And when it goes hand-to-hand, a lot of times you see that. But I don't have the exact percentage. Right, right. But So it's not just a problem that we have with Mexico or the cartels, right? We have no. a problem in this country with people selling it. Oh, yeah, we have challenges with that. And, and I think one of the things we've seen the last few years maybe is a lot of your opiate People who have a disorder for that, they're addicted to that, then they're dealing to help fuel their addiction because they need to find money. So it kind of has changed the game a little bit with how we look in different dealers. So do you feel like the DEA has enough resources, is doing enough to curb this problem? Or it, it seems like it's just getting worse. We have more deaths than ever. Well, we're just like anybody else. You know, more resources is always something we would like to have. And we're always speaking with the department and they're going up to the hill to work on that to see more resources. With that said, what I can tell you is we're continuing to evolve with the threat. And we have the people we have in place and we're continuing to address that and prioritize. And throughout the United States and the world every day, that's what we're doing is trying to prioritize so we can go after those biggest threats. There isn't just one solution, right? No, there's not. What do you think it will take? I think it's a consolidated effort from everybody. It's from the enforcement side, but it's also from the education, the treatment. And I think that we have to do more just what this summit's about. We have to find ways to expand all of our impact into our communities. We have to get more involved with educating so our children don't even start down this road. It seems as more families are heartbroken by this horrible overdose, fentanyl poisoning epidemic, that more people are taking action and speaking out about it. They're not hiding in the shadows as much anymore because there was so much stigma around substance use disorder, around drug use, around drug deaths. But as it affects more people, it seems like more people are doing things, starting their own organizations like mine or doing something along those lines. Well, it's extremely courageous and it shows the People want to find ways because people don't want others to go through what they've gone through. And we're learning from this community just how 
maybe having a different approach and understanding and how we can find ways to collaborate so that that we can help to turn this thing and start bringing these numbers down because it's it's so catastrophic. I know. I think speaking as someone who does advocacy work, it can feel really frustrating some days because you see, you know, the numbers going up. It seems like there's more fentanyl around or available and more kids are dying, teenagers, younger people now, and it's been found in marijuana vapes. Mm-hmm. It's just frightening and it just can be frustrating as someone, I'm sure doing your work mm-hmm. and doing my work, that it doesn't seem like we're making enough of a dent. Well, I've been asked this question many times in 20 years plus of doing this. And what I I always say is, what is the value of one human life? And if what we do saves a life, it then it does make an impact. And every time we hold somebody accountable for distributing the drug, there's no telling how many lives we save by doing that. Or every time a kid, we educate them and they're scared to try something, they turn away. You know, we've saved that. And from doing this for a long time, you have to keep that into perspective. And what I think is really helping is as we come together and share these ideas, it's helping all of us be better. And we hope that from the Drug Enforcement Administration that we're helping the community to see some of the things we're doing and maybe where the community feels more comfortable to come to us and have more collaboration and how we can help. I can tell you that because of my meetings with the DEA and because of some of these events like this one, I've learned a lot. And then when I speak to audiences and I tell Emily's story, I'm able to answer a lot of people's questions with Mm -hmm. factual information because I got it from the source, the DEA, right? Yeah. And I think that one of the things that we're learning is like we know the numbers, what we face. We know how many people we arrest, how many drugs we take off the streets, how many dosages that is. What we don't know sometimes is what we're learning is all the other things that your community knows and your community is finding out and things that you're doing to help get into schools and help with things. And we think, yeah, we have an outreach program, but maybe our outreach program, we can help make improvements. We can work with people like you to do that. And I think it's very encouraging whenever you're around because I see so many people, like you said, that are trying to do new things and they're really trying and You never know a billboard. You never know sitting down with a school, educating somebody or somebody getting some legislation changed. You never know what comes from that. Right, right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today and for everything that you're doing. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time to hear more about one of America's most pressing issues today. If you could take a moment to rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends and family, We'd really appreciate it. Your support helps us spread our message and increase awareness about our nation's deadly drug epidemic, decreasing the stigma surrounding substance use disorder and hopefully saving lives in the process. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. This podcast is produced by Casey Wannenberg-King and Anna Fye.